tiptoe up the road of tulips. Oh, there couldn't have been a song like that for crying out loud. You just can't, you just can't imagine, uh, I mean, grown up walking around spitting, scratching people, singing tiptoe. That's all academic anyway. It's all. By the way, is uh, it occurred to you recently that your life is all just academic? I mean, it's all, you know, it's just there. Who was it who said that? Who said that life is indeed a myth created by the great orbital concentric thoughts of a man involved in his total egocentricity, huh? Who was it? That's a beautiful quote. I think it was Earl Wilson. Sounds like Wilson, doesn't it? Earl Wilson, New York's bazoom boy. Bring it up there, big. Tonight's program is a very specially poignant public service feature. Tonight's whole show, very poignant. Hey, listen, I got a great letter the other night from a lady to sit down. I saw you on that show with Gene Rayburn, Gene Rayburn's show called The Hell of a Town. Did you see that? And uh, she wrote this letter saying, she said, uh, what are you hanging around such a stinky, rotten neighborhood for? Talking about Times Square? Well, I won't tell you where she wrote from. But let's put it this way. It's right in the heart of the uh, Van Allen smog belt of Jersey. As a matter of fact, it's so close to Secaucus that you can throw out a diet Yoo-Hoo bottle and land right in the middle of a pigsty. Dump, dump, dump. But that's so, you know, neither here nor there. We did get a very sad letter, and uh, and the tonight uh, tonight we're we're going to do a very special public service broadcast for those of you who are suffering tonight. And uh, got a letter from this kid. He says, Shepard, I don't know what this is, man. He says, Oh boy, I'm up to my blooming knickers already. He says, here it is only a couple of weeks into the school year, and I'm sunk. I'm flunking already. He says, I have sat through five classes already, which I do not understand the word of. Kid, sit closer to the radio. And uh, send your old man back downstairs in the house there so he can watch uh, that uh, Leo Carrillo movie co-starring Priscilla Lane and the the uh, irrepressible Jeffrey Lynn. Go ahead. You send him down there and have him open up a can of beer and get him out of the house because we got talk here. You have misunderstood a great deal of life. So uh, while you're preparing your house there for the denouement or the denouement, as I once heard a guy in the Barry Faber show say it, would you please, if you will, a little honking Susan Hall music? Yes, friend? Fellow sufferer? Fellow traveler on this great yellow brick road? Yes? The gutters and the curbs, the pathways and the shoulders of this yellow brick road are strewn with the bleached bones of the victims who misinterpreted life. And the sun shines down now into the hollow sockets of their old skull bones where they fell. Oh, yes, this is all, of course, rhetorical. None of you are ever going to die. You're going to live forever. The whole crew of you, so it's all right. 
myself specifically to this poor kid there who is already sunk out there. It's only a couple of weeks into the school year, the college year. He's already treading water and bailing his leaky rowboat. You know what you're doing, kid? You're trying to learn stuff. That way lies madness. I mean, you're really conscientious. You're trying to learn all that stuff that's in that book. Now, I know I am also a victim. I know this. That I spent too many years, in fact, it was a misspent youth, attempting to do problems one, three, five, seven, and nine at the back of the chapter and really tried to do it. And I want you... To listen carefully now. Would you please bring me a little bit of that honking music? And for those of you, all of you out there, that are struggling and beating your head against the walls of the dormitory, who are throwing your textbooks down the air shaft of life, who are burning incense to the great gods of Aquarius, hoping that the 1970s will magically transform you into a groovy, fantastic new person. And let's face it, friend, 1970 is just a number on a piece of paper. I would like to read to you out of the works of George Ade. I would like to read to you, and very carefully, this is tonight's lesson, The Fable of the Bookworm and the Butterfly Who Went Into the Law. All right, get it out there. That means out. When I say out, that means out. Okay, the fable of the bookworm and the butterfly who went into the law. And if you're studying anything, friend, out there, if you're studying the law, if you're studying, if you're studying chemistry, this may be one of the nights that could very well change your life. All set? Two brothers started away to college at the same time. And by the way, this fable was written in the year 1903. So it has stood the test of time. Sixty-six years ago, this fable was written by a man who also went to college and observed at George Ade. In fact, if you're curious who he was, George Ade probably was the progenitor of most modern humor writers in America. The guy that takes the... Uh, somewhat sardonic look at life and sees that the life is not always a chole of berries, right? And cackles off into the middle distance, uh, carrying his knowledge with him. Uh, George Ade uh, is not, not I don't think, given nearly the credit that he will eventually be given. Uh, maybe perhaps because Ade uh, was not one for blowing his own horn. No, he wasn't. No, no. 
And uh, furthermore, aid, aid, uh, aid had a lot of other things. You know, one of the things about aid that you should know, have you ever heard of the Ross Aid Stadium, which is a, the big stadium that Purdue University plays its football games in? Well, that was named after George Aid, who was a distinguished graduate of Purdue University. Anyway, here's what Aid said in 1903 about the very problem that is bugging I guess 96% of the average walking around undergraduate today. To study or not to study. To flunk and therefore to take on the unkind arrows and slings of the howling gales of fate and go down the drain with the rest of the flunkies or to make it other ways. (laughs) Two brothers started away to college at the same time. Just before they boarded the train, Pa led them aside and handed them some splendid advice. The old man. He told them that they were now ready to mold their futures. He said he wanted them to stay in of evenings and bone hard, and he hoped that they would mind the faculty and keep away from the cigarette fiends who play the banjo and talk about actresses. He wanted them to stand high in their classes and devote their spare moments to reading rather than to the whimsies and mimical fooleries of a university town. You have heard this too, I'm sure. William listened solemnly and promised to behave. Charlie fidgeted in his chair and said it was nearly train time. So they rode away on the varnished cars, William reading about the goths and the vandals, and Charlie playing seven-up with a shoe drummer from Lowell. At the university, William remembered what Pa had said, so he cooped himself up in his room and became a dig, and soon enough he was greatly despised as a pet of the professor. Charlie, on the other hand, wore a striped jersey and joined the track team and worked into the glee club. He went to his room when all the other places had closed up in town. Every time a show struck town, he was in the front row to yell at the performers and pick up some new gags. He went calling on all the town girls who could stand for his fresh ways, and he was known as the best dancer in the Kai Kai chapter of the Gamma Upsilon Greek Letter Fraternity. The reports sent home indicated that William was corralling the honors and scholarship, and Charlie was getting through each exam by the barest skin of his teeth. But Charlie had been elected uh, honors. Charlie had been elected a Yale captain and could do his 100 yards in 10 seconds flat. Pa would write to Charlie now and then and tell him to brace up, give him a hunch that life was full of sober responsibilities, and therefore he had better store his mind with useful knowledge and chop on all the frivols and fopperies. Whereupon Charlie would write back that he needed 50 by return mail to uh, pay for uh, chemicals that he used in the laboratory. By the time that both of them were seniors, William had grown a fussy climber in front of each ear and was troubled with weak eyes. He always had a volume of Kant or Schopenhauer under his arm, and he seemed to be continually in a brown study as he walked across the campus thinking deep thoughts. Charlie kept himself neat and knobby and seemed always cheerful, even though he had two or three conditions to his discredit and only an outside chance of taking his degree, if that. He was manager of the football team. He had earned the affectionate nickname of Rocky. He was a great hand to get acquainted with any girl who dared show herself near the halls of learning. And by constant practice, he had developed into a star chinner so that he could talk low to almost any one of them and make her believe that of all the flowers that ever bloomed, 
She was the one and only $30,000 carnation. William kept away from hops and promenades because he remembered what Pa had said about the distracting influence of fripperies and the tittle-tattle of artificial society. The only girl he knew was a professor's sister, age 51, with whom he was wont to discuss the theory of unconscious cerebration. Then he would drink a cup of tea and go home at 8.45 p.m. Charlie, at about that time, would be just starting out on the primrose path to spend a lot of time writing his name on dance cards and get acquainted with the real folks who live downtown. On commencement day, William received the Cyrus J. Blinker Prize of a set of found Morocco books for getting the highest general average of anyone in the class. Charlie just managed to squeak through. The faculty gave him a degree for fear that he, if he didn't get a degree, he might come back and stay another year. So out he went. After they had graduated, Pa sat them both down and gave him another talk. He said he was proud of William, but Charlie had been a trial to him. Still, he hoped it was not too late to set the boy on the right track. He was going to put both of them into a law office, and he wanted them to read law for all they would worth and not be lured away from their work by the glittering temptations of life in the big city. William said he was prepared to read law till he was black in the face. Charlie said that he wouldn't mind pacing a few heats with Blackstone and Cooley now and then, if he found that he could uh, spare the time. Father groaned inwardly and did not see much hope in the future for Charlie. When the two sons became fixtures in the office of an established law firm, William kept his nose between the leaves of a Supreme Court report, and Charlie was out warming up to the influential clients and making a lot of dates for luncheons a little golf, some foursomes. Within three months after they had started at the office, William had read all the books in the place. And Charlie was out spending three weeks at the summer home of the president of a large construction company who was stuck on Charlie's dialect stories and liked to have him around because he was such a fantastic dresser and made it lively for all the women. Out at the country place, it happened that Charlie met a girl who didn't know how much she was worth. So Charlie thought it would be an act of kindness to help her find out. When he sat out with her in the cool of the evening and gave her the burning gaze and the low entrancing love purr that he had practiced for four years at the university, she stopped him before he was half finished and told him that he did not have to work overtime because he was the boy for Nellie right now. She said that she had him picked out from the moment that she noticed how well his coat fit him in the back. <laughs> In one of the large office buildings of the city, right now, friends, there is a suite finished in dark wood, magnificent Filipino teak, in case you're interested. At a massive roll-top desk sits Charlie, the handsome, successful lawyer, who is acquainted with all the club fellows, society bucks, and golf demons in town. When a client comes in with a naughty question of law, Charlie calls in his beautiful blonde secretary to jot down all the points in the case. Then the client departs. Charlie reaches over to a mother-of-pearl button on his desk and presses it, therefore ringing a bell. And Brother William comes out of a side room with his coat bunched in the back, his trousers bagged at the knees, his cravat is tied on one side only, and he needs a shave. But... 
He is full of the law. Charlie turns all the papers over to him and tells him to wrestle with the authorities for a few days and nights. Then William slips back into his hole and humps himself over the calf-bound volumes while Charlie puts on his slate-colored gloves, his fancy Homburg hat, and goes out to where Simpson is holding the door open for him in his large limousine. He and Nellie then take the air in their $17,000 rolls that he bought with her money. And later in the day, they dine with the stocks and bonds and finish with the theater. And Charlie these days often reflects that it was a great piece of foresight on Pa's part to counsel studious habits and rigid mental discipline. For if William had not been a grind at college, probably he would not have proved to be such a help around the office. And although William gets the loser's end of the fees and is never called on to make a witty speech at a banquet given by the Bar Association, he has the satisfaction of knowing that he is the silent partner, the lesser paid partner of the best-dressed attorney in town and the one who is welcome wherever he goes. Now, if you'd like to know the moral of that story, friend, in case you missed it, I mean, in case you don't quite see what that story is talking about, friends, and it's quite easy to see that you've missed it because uh, there you are, old Brother William out there, your nose down to nothing but a small bone. All right, here's the moral of the story, as given by George A. Quote, there are at least two kinds of education. You bet. <laughs> oh, brother Charlie, we salute you. I wish I had learned the secret of life in fourth grade. <laughs> oh, man. You know, speaking of, uh, of, uh, you know, this, this, this world of, of uh, there are at least two kinds of education. Boy, does that come hard. I mean, you, you really, uh, from the time you're a little kid, you know, you're told things like, uh, haste makes waste. And you're told stuff like, a penny saved is a penny earned. You know? And then you're told things like, uh, oh, uh, things like, uh, patience is a virtue. Oh, this is another good one. That means uh, don't rock the boat. <laughs> You're told all this great stuff. And, and uh, it's only later, uh, and it doesn't take much time either, you know. You're, you're about ten minutes after you're out of school. Even sometimes in school you see it. Later, the scales begin to fall from the eyes. Boy, oh boy, I want to tell you, that is such a true story. Uh, that, that business of, the, of William and Charlie... And I, I know, because when I was in, well, I'll tell you a little story about, my, uh, about the class I was in uh, as a kid. No, it's, it's, it's fascinating when you look back on guys you knew, and you can see what's happened to them. Yes, it's really, really, <laughs> well, all right, I'll tell you now. In my class, it was me, you know, there's Flick, and Schwartz, and Bruner, all these guys sitting around there. And uh, they had this thing called the honor roll. Now, you know what the honor roll is. You get a certain grades, and uh, they put your name up on the board. And uh, if you're in a slot in the honor roll, they put your name with a star next to it and all that jazz. 
And, of course, the whole point was to get on the honor roll, to learn this stuff and, you know, really fight the battle of algebra and really, uh, you know, wage your way through the geography of Peru and the principal exports of Bolivia and all this great stuff and struggle your way into the realm of total rarefied knowledge and become part of the honor roll. Well, now, almost everybody on the roll, to begin with, were girls. I mean, there was a whole bunch of girls that really... Uh, now, I don't know whether they were smarter or whether... Well, no, 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 no. See, girls are uh, 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 coming later now, looking around it. I'm not convinced that girls were smarter. Let's put it this way, sneakier. I don't know what it is. And they also seem to be more dogged. Uh... And in, in a way, I've, I've discovered that girls, even though they sometimes look quite innocent when they're in class, are, are generally have more chutzpah. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about, you know, a girl who's beautiful and uh, she's got this male-type teacher. Nothing at all. I mean, there's something else to it. That uh, the girls are natural-born studiers. Now, whether they can do anything with it after they've learned it is another question. But they're natural-born studiers. Now, for example, I, I know of a case of a lady who has taken all the written examinations given by the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. She has taken the written examination for uh, and passed with flying colors, in fact, flags flapping. She's taken the written examination for the commercial pilot's license, the uh, airline transport rating, the whole bit. But the trouble is she cannot land the Cherokee 140. I mean, her, her information, her knowledge is almost exclusively uh, academic and abstract. Now, you see a lot of people in colleges like this. A lot of teachers are this way. Uh, they, uh, you know, their, their knowledge of things is, is tremendously abstract. And so if you can, if you can study uh, uh, knowledge with the aim of almost in the sense of doing a gigantic four-year New York Times crossword puzzle that even when you finish it is worth nothing, I mean, what do you do with a crossword puzzle that you finally worked? I mean, there's a little brief moment of satisfaction, and that's the end of the ball game. Well, this is the way it is with a lot of knowledge. And I think this is why a lot of people are talking about the irrelevance of college. Because so much of knowledge is really just knowledge for its own sake alone. Now, there's certain people, and there are quite a few of them, actually, who enjoy this kind of mental game, mental exercise to acquire all this this great amount of, of, uh, of highly complex, uh, obtruse, uh, esoteric knowledge. It's a great thing to do, you see. You can become the, the greatest expert in your neighborhood on the Punic Wars and on the strategy employed by the General Hieronymus as he approached the walls of Troy. But uh, ultimately, you see, this is a, <laughs> you know, it's a, we're not all in that bag. So, so you find you find that women are more inclined to be in that that, that thing. I noticed that about women. I'm going to get five thousand letters from ladies. They're angry about this, but it is a fact. This is not a fact. According to my observation, this seems to be a fact. Women are great with abstract knowledge, but uh, they're not necessarily uh, the ones to apply it. Now, on the other hand, a lot of guys are quite the opposite, and that's a value judgment on it. I'm saying a lot of men are are, uh, you know, fantastic at doing things like, uh, like uh, almost, have you noticed that almost every intuitive inventor is a male? Uh, there is no female uh, counterpart to Thomas Edison, who was a self-taught type inventor. 
there is no counterpart, really, a female counterpart to say somebody like Henry Ford, who was a doer, totally. Abstractions were all bunk to him. History was bunk. But uh, he sure could put together a Model T frame, friend. <laughs> and, uh, and this is, so these are two different ways. Now, on the other hand, the woman, you find a lot of women, you see, make, make great teachers. Uh, and they make, they make great uh, abstract uh, uh, type. Well, Mary McCarthy, the, the, the writer, there's an example of this. Uh, Mary McCarthy's knowledge, Susan Sontag is another abstractionist, you see, and they, they get applauded for all these the great abstract theories and complex involved things. Have very little to do with life, but they, they make such nice rolling, uh, sparkling little sentences. And so, ultimately, you have this great clash between the... Uh, the abstractionists and the guys that are out uh, cleaning the grease trap. Now uh, you're you're being very uh, you're being very wrong. Now again, it may sound like I'm being anti-intellectual, but uh, you know you're often called anti-intellectual because you 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 say, look, the other guy too has value, and probably in many cases has more value than the abstractionist. So ultimately, you got this fantastic clash between the two of them. See, and it works out in, in almost every situation where you're involved in a learning process. You see it happening all around you. Like, for example, like, uh, oh, it used to bug me. Like when I was working on, the, let's say, taking an exam. Now, I don't know how many of you have taken exams recently. No, I'm not, not even, uh, a lot of you haven't. Now, I'm, when I say recently, I'm talking about within the last three or four years, a really tough exam. Now, many of you haven't. Uh, but I have. Uh, when, you're, when you're involved in flying, you do take these exams. And so you sit around and you see guys who can sit there with their, with their, uh, with their computer, and boy, they can knock off wind triangle problems and slapping away there and, and yapping. But you notice a lot of them are out there, and you hear that flailing around the patch out there, and you, you see this guy, you see, he's going up and down, and under the wires he goes, you know, and he makes this, yeah, and, and uh, here's the guy that was the fantastic ace with the computer. And uh, he knows all, and he, he snaps out the answers and makes you feel like a total dolt. And on the other hand, you're out there flying that little bird around like you, you know, like you were born in it. And uh, so ultimately, uh, only rarely do the two actually meet. And uh, when they meet, then look out. Then you've got a formative, very formidable type person. But that is rare And uh, in my experience. And so I remember here I am sitting around seeing this Schwartz and Flick and Brunner. And we got sucked into the honor roll pit. And they were given out a medal. I remember the medal. There, <laughs> there was a medal that was given by, uh, I don't know who it was, a Kiwanis Club or something like that, but it was a gold medal. And it was a big deal. that The gold medal went to the, uh, well, it wasn't, it was a very carefully worded medal, but the gold medal went to the most deserving student, is the way they put it. Well, you know, so. The only guy I knew who was really a total... Uh, Bucker for that kind of stuff for Schwartz. Schwartz was a guy with very little talent, but fantastic industry. <laughs> he worked like a fiend. I'm telling you, I never saw anybody work in my life like Schwartz would work. So Schwartz is working like he. I, I remember he's the only guy I ever knew who, in, in his sophomore year, he decided that what he had to have, he had to learn how to type. So uh, he went to this typing school where he paid. You know, he worked at night to earn the money to learn how to type. So he figured he could get bigger grades. You know, he read an ad that said, if you know how to type, your grades will be better. So he's out there typing away, and he's banging out. Of course, uh, uh, the typewriter doesn't exactly tell you what to say when you're writing you. 
Schwartz never stopped to think about that, but he figured if he could type it faster, then it would be better. So Schwartz learns how to type. He's sweating like a fiend. And then he also went out, he did other things too. Not only did he learn how to type, Schwartz also read an ad along where, you know, somewhere along the line that if you had a set of world books in your house, then you would be even smarter because you could read the whole world book set from beginning to end, starting with Art Bark and work all the way through Xenophon, through Zanzibar, you know. And so Schwartz got himself a set of world books. He worked like a fiend. And his old mad shipped in some dough, and he wound up with the world books. And every night, Schwartz would sit practicing, typing, and reading the world books. Right? He's working through, uh, he's all the way down now to, uh, you know, down to the L's. And if you've ever tried to read the entire world book plus the Encyclopedia Britannica at the same time, you know why Schwartz's eyes were bugging out of his head half the time. Well, I was sort of a middle ground type. You know, I used to go over and borrow Schwartz's world book. I never got to the point where I wanted a world book. And once in a while, when I wanted to play around with Schwartz's typewriter, I would go over and play around with a typewriter. But I never really got serious because I was involved in the world of athletics. You see, my whole thing was going out for athletics. And then Schwartz read an ad along the line, or a piece in the Reader's Digest is always having pieces like this, that uh, a healthy body means a healthy mind. So Schwartz decided to go out for football. Well, he was five feet, three and a half inches tall. He weighed 116 pounds. And a lot of times, Schwartz in scrimmages would get confused for the football. I saw guys kick Schwartz all the way over to you know, and he was constantly bloody and torn. And there'd be a giant pileup, and he was always the first guy cut. The day when the cut came, the first guy, they didn't even bother to ask, you know, just Schwartz and the rest of them would walk off the field, and the other guys that really played, who didn't come out until the last couple of days of training anyway, because they were also playing on the baseball team, on the basketball team, they immediately got on the ball club. Schwartz would work. He would do push-ups. Schwartz was a fantastic studier. Okay? I was the middle ground. I was observing this. I was like Nick Jenkins in uh, A Dance to the Music of Time. I've often thought of myself as the, as the, as the Nick of uh, the great Gatsby. Yeah, the observer, the dispassionate. <laughs> you know, this is the way it was. And so I see Schwartz really struggling. Now, Flick, on the other hand, was a total, well, I, I hate to say, uh, ne'er-do-well. Let's put it this way. Uh, when, whenever they used to tell us what books we needed for the new semester, they'd write up on the board, these are the books you have to get by Wednesday. Flick would have them roughly by uh, St. Valentine's Day, which was a good semester and a half late. Because it was all academic with him, he never used them when he got them. And uh, a Flick would just wander along through school. And as a matter of fact, he just finally, in the middle of his junior year, wandered right out. And it was mutual. They were pleased that he did. And he wandered off, and that was the end of Flick, as far as school was concerned. He was, he was the far other end of the scale. But there was another guy in our class. Jack Morton. Now, Jack Morton, you have not heard me talk much about. Occasionally I've referred to Morton because my, my mind is of two different thoughts about Jack Morton. On the other hand, you could, one hand, you could not help but dig old Jack Morton. He was handsome. Jack was about six feet one. He had a chiseled profile. It was great, I mean, as far as it, when it came to being a party type. 
Jack was always giving parties, throwing parties. He always had this convertible that he got someplace, and he never hesitated to pick guys up when he was driving down the street. And he'd say, get in, for God's sakes, let's go. Old Jack Morton. Jack was everybody's buddy. Jack was also a guy who, uh, once in a while in the middle of class, when there'd be a tense moment that looked like Morton was about to be trapped and not knowing what the principal exports of Bolivia were, Jack would come up with a little funny, and everybody would roar. Even Mr. Melton would roar. Mr. Settlemeyer would roar. Everybody dug Jack Melton, Jack Morton, okay? He even had a sister, a member Rosella. And he had, a, he had another sister who uh, was even more interesting, who, who was the greatest, absolutely the top dancer in school. As a matter of fact, his sister was the head of the drum majorettes. She was the head of the cheerleaders. She also was the prom queen. She also was something else, which I cannot say in the air. But let me tell you this way, Irene Morton was the real bippy in, the <laughs> in our high school. She went, oh, she was fantastic. And old Jack, he was a fit brother to her. He was tall and handsome, cool boy. He was in, and he and he used to do stuff like uh, I'll never forget the time uh, three or four days before a major track meet. There was a lot of kids laughing around one day, and he was tall. He was six feet one. Somebody says, "You know, why don't you go out for track, Mort?" He says, "You know, I think I may do that." And three days later, he won the city championship in the high jump, never having high jumped in his life. Okay? Jack Morton. Jack Morton, in four years, never once got within spitting distance or even rock-throwing distance of the honor roll. Schwartz was on the honor roll from the first day he got into school. Not only on the honor roll, Schwartz was usually one or two or three on the honor roll. He was one of these guys with a 9.9999 six average and his great uh, uh, sorrow that he carried with him was the time that he got the B plus in plain geometry because he got the chicken pox or something out of missed nine weeks of school and so he got a B plus the only mark on Schwartz's entire four-year career at the at the school you know and and of course Morton let me tell you about Morton Morton's toughest class was printing. Morton never took classes where, you know, you had to have in a homework. Morton was always in something like, uh, oh, uh, health. He was always taking a class like uh, driving safety, a thing like personal hygiene. He was always in those classes. At the Schwartz, where was Schwartz? Latin 9. Schwartz was fighting his way through German 26. Schwartz was always sitting down there, and, and they had special mathematical classes you could take if you got great, you know, if you got great grades in, in algebra and geometry, you could take uh, calculus, and differential equations. Guess who was there? Absolutely, right there with bells on. Eileen Akers and Schwartz battled it out for years. <laughs> oh, and, and he used to hate Eileen Akers because Eileen Akers, you see, cute, and Eileen Akers was was he little girls. You know, the little cute kind who could spell like an absolute maniac. Not only could she spell, but she was one of these people who could read an entire book in like 25 minutes. And boy, that's a, that's a, that's really cheating. 
I mean, I'm the kind of guy, you know, or at least in those days, I was the kind of guy that would read one page over 16 times about Bolivia. And that Friday it would dawn on me, I was reading about South America, you know, <laughs> and not about some guy that played halfback for Illinois. And uh, so she was fantastic with reading. And Schwartz and Eileen Akers battled it out. Eileen Akers had a 9.999 average. In fact, she had the highest average that I ever heard of in high school, four years. She got, listen, she got scholarships to every known university. And Schwartz got about the other half of the scholarships. And the two of them battled it down the line. And then the day came. We were about to graduate. And I remember they were handing out the bids for graduation. We received these... Uh, Little things, you know, that uh, uh, inviting each senior to the graduation luncheon and the graduation dinner and the valedictorian dinner and all this stuff. But he's all excited, and Schwartz was licking his chops. He could see the Kiwanis Club gold medal for the distinguished student right over the horizon. Not only that, he was going to bring down the top scholastic and academic record of the male population. Irene Akers could see herself with the gold medal. I don't have to tell you who got the gold medal. Jack Morton walked off with the gold medal as the most deserving student. Why? Jack Morton was the president of every club in the school. Jack Morton edited the joke page of the newspaper and won three awards for the best joke page of any scholastic journal in the country. Jack Morton headed the senior class dance committee that did such a great job and was able to get that great band. Jack Morton won the gold medal. He was the most deserving student. See, we keep confusing student with getting grades. Morton did it all. Not only that, I'll never forget what happened after that. Morton joined the RAF. And it seems like three weeks later, he returned and he was already a major. Schwartz spent nine years as a PFC, studying log log tables, cleaning grease traps in places like Camp Crowder, Missouri. And what happened to Jack Morton's sister? Well, she went on to become a movie star. She was a movie star under another name. She was making like $400 million a picture. Where is Eileen Akers? Are you curious where Eileen Akers is today? She's working in the Black Oak, Indiana Library, handing out Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy books to little kids with acne. But she had the highest average ever gained in the high school. And where is Morton's sister today? Well, she lives on the coast of Spain. And her husband is a famous movie producer. Where is Jack Morton today? Jack is now an executive vice president of one of the biggest automobile companies in the world. Probably making, oh, possibly $400,000 a year. And so, friends, it is true there are at least two kinds of education. Make sure you do not stunt your growth in the other kind.